As a church, um, we've started last week on a series in the book of Ephesians. And um, last week we looked at Ephesians 1 to 14. I want to encourage you, each one as a church, to dig into the book of Ephesians. Um, it's very beneficial for us individually, but there's something special in a church when we all study the same part of Scripture and see how God is speaking to us about it. Studying God's Word and digging deeper, you've put up on the screen there a picture of Gulliver's Travels. And um, I think I shocked some people the other day when I told you that um, when I went to university straight from high school, I did a major in English literature. Um, but one of the things that amazed me was Gulliver's Travel. Because when I went to uni, I thought that Gulliver's Travel was a kid's cartoon. And I knew the basic idea about the giant that went to the land of the miniature people. And I couldn't believe it in first year uni when we studied the novel Gulliver's Travel by Jonathan Swift that was written in the 18th century. Only to discover that it was one of the most amazing social, political, critique satires of the 18th century England that you could imagine. And I've always held it as a very special book. In fact, I use it sometimes to quote in sermons because there are things that were then that apply to now as well. And can I just encourage you to take up the challenge of digging into Ephesians? You know, especially for those of us who grew up in the church, sometimes we're content to have like a Sunday school idea of the Bible. We know the basic stories and what happened. But the Bible will bless us as we dig in deeper and we look at the meaning. And I'm going to encourage you, each one, to um, not be satisfied with just a superficial overview of our text, but to, over the next nine weeks after this week, to continue to think about it and ask God to show himself to us through it. You know, the book of Ephesians is considered to be one of the most refined, elegant writings in the New Testament. Um, Samuel Coleridge, the poet, described it as being the divinest, comp divinest composition of man. Somebody else talked about it being the queen of the epistles. And um, other commentators say it's the most relevant of Paul's works. There's something special about the book of Ephesians. Um, firstly, because in some ways it was the climax of the Apostle Paul's writings we're used to reading the various epistles and letters of Paul to the various churches, but the book of Ephesians was written right at the end of his life. He'd been around, he'd done his missionary journeys, he'd preached through the empire, he'd passed it here and there, including at the, um, the church at Ephesus, and now he's in jail um, waiting upon his sentence and soon to be his translation from this earth to the next. And he sits down and he pens the letter to the book of Ephesians. And it's like a condensation of the things that in his ministry, in his life, he was so keen to get the church to understand and to know and to do. And um, he was sitting there and he wrote this letter. Um, and it's actually the book of Ephesians as we know it. But it would seem that it was actually a letter that was written because it was applicable to all of the churches. And in fact, some of the um, early documents um, say that Ephesians is only found in some letters, or some copies of the book of Ephesians. 
And it seems to me that this was more likely to be a circular letter that was applicable to the church at Ephesus, certainly, but also applicable to the other churches that Paul had nurtured. I tried to think of a simple example. Do you remember when we used to write letters or type letters at Christmas? I know people don't do that anymore, um, or not many. And we would write a general letter and then we'd leave a blank at the top and it'd say, Dear, and then you'd simply go down and write down the 10 or 20 names of people you wanted to send the letter. It was a, a letter that applied to everybody and then you sent it to individual people. Well, I think the book of Ephesians is something like that. It's, it's a, an encouragement to the church, encouragement to the church in the first century, and it's an encouragement of the church in the 21st century as well. And so it's well worth our consideration. It's well worth our study. Last week we started with the first 14 verses. Today we're going to look at verses 15 to 23 on chapter 1. And so the words will be on the screen. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it and to keep it open. And we're going to seek God as we read this together. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Before we go in and look at it verse by verse, just a couple of tips or suggestions of the bigger picture that will help you and me as we look at this um, book week by week in the particular verses. Um, the first thing is that there is a big theme or a big um, plot, if you like, to the letter. And um, Dave shared with us last week, um, it can be summarised in two words, in Christ. Paul is writing to the church and he is sharing with them both theologically and then the implications of that, what it means to be in Christ. In fact, it talks about being in Christ at two levels. It talks about being in Christ in our relationship with God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And it also talks about the importance that to be in Christ, that we are part of Christ's body of the church. And last week when we looked at verses 1 to 14, we saw the praise that Paul brought to assure the followers of Jesus about their future. 
And we read verses like this, verse 11 and 12. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to put our hopes in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And so we're talking about what it means to be in that relationship with God but also our relationship with other believers, the church, one another. And, and both those things have got to be held together. I suspect in the 21st century we like to see them as separate things. We think about our relationship with God as being an individual thing and our relationship with the church or the organised church and whatever as being something else. You can't read Ephesians unless you see that the two are actually one. It means to be in Christ, in Christ with God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit and in fellowship with his body, the church. And along that lines, there's another tip which you may not easily pick up but it's worth thinking about is that when you read the book of Ephesians, there are four main persons, four main characters that are shown together and their relationship together. And when you become aware of the four key people, as you read it through and see how they're related, you will see this book in a different light, I think. It will make it seem so much more relevant. Now, you just got to humour me on this little discursion, excursion, but um, it's a bit like this. It's an illustration of how sometimes when you look at who the characters are, it makes a difference. I want to read you a little story and I want you to think about um, what this means. It's not out of Ephesians. It says this, There was an important job to be done and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. I'm not talking about the building project either. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry with, with, about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realised that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Are you a bit confused? Um, the, the person who wrote that poem, it's not about what you think it's about. The person who wrote that poem said this is a poem about four particular people who had some unusual names. The first person's name was everybody. The second person's name was somebody. The third person's name was anybody. And the fourth person's name was nobody. And so if we read it through, I'll put it up on the screen, instead of trying to make sense of the words just as I read them, think about it with four different people and try and see if you can imagine the situation. There was an important job to be done and the person, everybody, was sure that the person, somebody, would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realised that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Does it, see, does it sort of, do you read it differently when you actually translate it into four different people? Well, the book of Ephesians 
can be a bit like that too. And the Bible, we can read it and we think we say, oh, I've got a bit of a general idea. But sometimes when we dig in, there are some cues and keys that will help us to make more sense of what we read. And I think that's true because in the book of Ephesians, as I said before, there are four persons. And right through the book, you'll see that it talks about God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And it talks about how they're related and what they're doing and how they connect to each other. One of the dangers is in the 21st century, we tend to read the Bible from an individualistic point of view. And so when we read the pronouns, we think it's talking about me and my relationship with God. But in the book of Ephesians, you'll find the pronouns are plural. And it talks about the relationship of us, the church, together, our relationship with God. And so when we read through the book of Ephesians, we realise that Paul is saying that to the church, it's very important that we are unified, that we are together, that we relate to each other, and that our relationship with God is through us as his body, the church. And he goes on to say that there should be no distinction or no discrimination between all of those who are believers in Jesus. And Paul had a hard time convincing the first century church of that. He wrote in Galatians, for example, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And when we read the book of Ephesians, it's calling us to be unified as God's church in our special relationship that we have with God in three persons. So let's have a look at our text, starting at verse 15 and 16. It says this, For this reason, ever since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've, stopped, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. There's a natural transition in the book that we've been reading. Paul started off praising God for all the wonderful things that he has done that has impacted us and allowed us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. And so from praise we flow to prayer and here is Paul saying that he continues to pray for the church. The church at Ephesus he's praying. He's praying for all the churches that he ministered to and he is asking that God will continue to reveal himself so that they will be able to move on and to be his witness and his body in the world in which they're placed and that follows through us as well. So what is he asking God for for the believers? Well I think this is very much the same as what God um, would have for us to receive because of our relationship to him and we should be praying like Paul for the church that we might receive these things. The first one is this, he says that we are, um, he's praying that they receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. What's he praying for there? Well, the spirit of wisdom, there's obviously the Holy Spirit's involved, but wisdom is like the knowledge that we can gain. And revelation is God enlightening and communicating to us through his self. 
Um, and so he's praying that they might be a church which can grasp the knowledge and understanding of God, but also the enlightenment to understand what that means for them as they then serve God. I think it's a bit like this. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God, just as it works in human relationships as well. Like if I was um, going to think of somebody who I could know a lot about, I could use social media or um, um, the computer, or I could look up and find a lot of information. Um, I didn't know who to choose, so if I chose somebody like Prince William, has anybody heard of him? Um, second in line to the throne or first in line after King Charles. Um, and I took it about to study about Prince William. I reckon I could get a lot of information and understand a lot about Prince William. You know, I could probably find out where he was born, what he did, all those sorts of things. In fact, I could challenge people and say, I'll study up about Prince William and you can ask me 20 questions and see how many I get right. There's a, such a thing as knowing about somebody. But that's a different thing than knowing somebody. Do I know Prince William? Have I met him? Do I know his heart? Do I know what's important to him? Do I know um, those sorts of things? No, well, I've never met him. The closest my family got was that my great-grandfather used to clean the chimneys in Buckingham Palace. So we had royal connections, but in 1912, when they got rid of um, chimneys and put in electric heating, that was the end of my family's royal connections. Um, I don't know Prince William. Now, if you ask me about my wife, Annette, I know a lot about Annette, but I also know her personally. There's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between knowing knowledge and having a relationship with somebody. And that's what Paul is praying for the church. Um, he's not saying that it's not important to study and to gain knowledge. In fact, he's saying he's praying that they will have knowledge but also a relationship with God where God communicates to us and reveals himself to us through the work of the Holy Spirit, which he has given us our guarantee of our relationship with him. And so it becomes the old chestnut, doesn't it, that being part of the church is not joining a religion, it's being in a relationship with God. And it's about being in a relationship, not just me and God, we're just one-on-one, -on -one, but it's our relationship as the church as a whole, which therefore applies to each other as well, and our relationship with God. And Paul says, I'm praying that you might both know my word but you might also be open to hear God's voice as you do that. And then he goes on and he talks about three specific truths that he is praying that the church will grasp. And if they grasp it, then that will enable them to continue to move forward and to be all that God wants them to be. And so we come down to verse 18 and we read this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. And then he goes on to talk about what that power is. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, 
power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the personal age, but also in the one to come. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. He's saying, I'm praying that it goes from your head to your heart, that you will grasp this and you will understand it. And so what are these three things that for then and for now we need to grasp? The first one is this, the sure hope to which we've been called. Um, In the verse we read, it's the hope to which he has called you. Hope in the Bible has a different sense to what we often use the word hope for. In our culture, we often talk about hoping that something might happen. In the Bible, it's saying we can live our lives because we know that this will happen and on that basis we will do it. For example, if I was thinking about using the word hope in my culture, I might say some statements like this. Um, I might say, um, I hope that I have a nice meal when I get home. Um, I hope that one day I can travel overseas. Um, I hope that my boss will give me a raise. No, church council, don't panic. I'm just using it as an example. Um, It may not happen. Um, I hope I don't get sick. Do you know what I mean? We use those terms to talk about things that would be nice if that happened, but I don't know if it will happen or it won't. But the Bible sense of hope is that God has already promised, he has already gone ahead and there are things which are set and that we need to believe that with our sure hope that that's going to happen and that will give us boldness to be God's people. I mean, that's what one to, um, chapter 1 verses 1 to 14 was about, wasn't it? It talked about God right from the beginning. He predestined and decided to choose us as his people, to adopt us as his children. He had already decided that Christ's death on the cross was going to be sufficient so that we would be accepted into God's family, that we would be under one head who is Christ. And that sure hope will then allow us not to be... um, trying to decide what we should do but to move forward in confidence of who God is and so Paul prays and for the church then and for us that we will move forward with assurance knowing that what God's promised he will do now the second thing he wants us to grasp is this Um, it says our work uh, sorry to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people And I want to just suggest that if you're not thinking, this is a bit tricky. Because you know how I said we can just gloss over? We can think, oh, well, this is talking about inheritance. And my mind, first of all, goes to the idea that, well, aren't I blessed because God is going to bless me with all these wonderful things, that I will have this wonderful inheritance from God. And then I read the passage. That's what digging is about, isn't it? And it doesn't say about my inheritance. He says to know the riches of his inheritance, his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And so this is really saying that we need to actually understand how incredibly valuable, how how much worth we have as people because of our relationship with God. That, That somehow in this great... Um, story that's unfolding of God in the world, that he sees his church 
as being his glorious inheritance, that it's a blessing and that we are people of value and worth because of that. Jesus, I'm um, sorry, God, God right from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 had always seen the church as being part of the fulfilment of who God was. Um, and in Genesis 1.26, we read there where the, the Trinity, God, um, says, let us make man in our own image. Now, there were other created beings, but mankind was always made to be in relationship with God. And in the book of Ephesians, um, we, the church, are his inheritance and therefore of great value to God. And so Paul is saying, be sure of the hope that's within you so that you can move forward. Never doubt how valuable you are to God because he loves you so much. And then thirdly, he talks about the greatness of God's power and the fact that um, God is giving us, his adopted sons and daughters, the power that um, he has demonstrated in the world. And so we see here that um, the, the experiences of persecution, the challenges, the difficulties in living... Um, we tend to try and solve them in our own strength using our own power and our own wisdom. And God is saying, we need to trust in God's power and God's power is mighty. God's power is at work. I don't often quote Greek, but one of the Greek words that stuck in my head from years ago was the Greek word for power. I think because it had a bit of a bang to it. Um, the word for Greek word for power in, in Greek is dunamis, and that's where we get our word dynamite from. Okay, we're not talking about some tame power that we can keep control. God's power is mighty. And Paul wants to make sure we get that. So he talks about what this power is like. The power is the same as the mighty strength that he, God, exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Um, this is the power of God that through his church, the body, that he wants to impact the world that we're in. And so Paul is praying for us, praying for the Ephesians, yeah, praying for the church there, but for us as well that we might be people who are sure of our hope, that we are going to be people who understand our great worth to God. We're not something that God just tolerates. We're his adopted family. And also the greatness of God's power in which he is bringing about the, the history of this world to the climax that he chooses. Um, so it's not only this world, but in the world to come that he is at work. And then in the last part of our passage together, he says, as I pray, I'm praying that you will be open to dig into my word, you'll gain knowledge, but you'll be open to the spirit enlightening and moving you so that you understand that we go just from study to relationship, from head to heart. Um, and then you become confident in your relationship with me because of your hope, because of your worth to me, because of the power and then he comes to the last verses in 22 and 23 and he says, and all this is because you are my church and just how vitally important the unity of the church is to God. And it says in verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet 
and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Church, do you realise how valuable we are to God, how loved we are to God? This final verse reaffirms that God planned always at the beginning to call out for himself a people who would respond to his love. And it says here, and this is about the relationships, he appointed Christ as the head of the body. And again, you know, when we say we dig a bit, we sometimes think, oh yeah, we are the body, the church is the body, we worship God. This is far more intimate than that because Christ is part of the body. When we talk about the church, we're not just talking about the people who are followers of Christ, we're talking about Christ himself, which is the body um, and, and the fullness of it. He is the head of the church. And so the head has a special role of leadership and yet we are also to be part of that. That God wants us to work or to understand the importance of our unity with him. Church united together. And so as we sort of pull together this text, hopefully we've whet your appetite that you might be thinking, this book of Ephesians, it's worth digging in, it's worth looking at what's being said, use the study material, you can check out the sermons online, you can read a commentary, but praying that God will show us, not just individually, but as a church, what he has in store for us as well. And so the last part of the message this morning, I've just called it the application. I've actually borrowed a, a term, a verse from James chapter 1, verse 22, and um, he is writing to the church. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Don't only be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And I thought to myself, okay, if I wanted to be putting into practice what I've read today, what are some of the possible ways that I could actually do what I've been talking about? And so here's some suggestions that God might um, encourage you in and to follow up as part of this time when we focus on this part of scripture. The first one was this, as Paul prayed for the church, we also can pray for the church. And there are many ways that we can do that. But the church gathered together is what's in view here rather than just our individual prayer time, as important as that is in our relationship with God. And within our church, there are opportunities to do that. Did you know that every Monday morning at 6.30 in the morning, there's a group of people, I think it's been going for 30-something years, who come together and pray for the church and for God to be at work in our church. You could come at 6.30 on Monday. Everybody's welcome to come and pray. When people have particular needs, did you know we have a prayer network and at the moment, I think there's about 80 people. So when people contact the church and they say, hey, look, we really would ask the church to pray for a specific need, then we email that out confidentially and the people within that prayer network will pray. God works when God's people pray. There might be other things that you might do there. 
when Paul says that he prays for the spirit of knowledge and of enlightenment, um, of wisdom and of, of knowing what he says, then maybe as a church you might find that we should commit ourselves to reading God's word in an intentional way of seeking to understand what it's saying. Here's an interesting Bible challenge that maybe God might put on your heart. Don't, don't be bluffed by me, just if God wants you to do this. What would happen if I took the book of Ephesians, only six chapters, so each week between now and the end of the series, I'd read one chapter a day for six and then you can have the Sabbath rest on the seventh. And you just prayed as you read it and thought about what does it mean. Also ask God to enlighten us so that we might hear what he's saying to us. And then the third response, which I'm going to invite you to join me in doing um, just now, is that we might seek to grasp both the hope, the worth and the power of God. And I couldn't think of a better way of doing this than sharing communion together. Because when we share communion, um, we remember what Christ has done, but Christ also gave us that sure hope because he promised that we would do this until he comes again. No doubts, no questions. Um, we know that it reminds us of our worth when we think about we who were ungodly when Christ came and laid down his life for us. What an object of love we are to God that Jesus came and gave his life for us. No greater love has a man than he would lay down his life for the other. And thirdly, it reminds us of power because when we remember the um, communion together and when we share that, we don't only remember Christ's death, but we also remember his resurrection, which was the great demonstration, his victory over sin and death, and we look forward to his return again. And so I'm going to ask the music team to come and to, um, to join us up here. You should have received communion elements, but if you haven't, if you just put your hand up and our, some of our welcomers can provide that, if anybody hasn't got a communion element... And last time I did this, I embarrassed myself, so why don't you join me and open them up now? Just take a bit of time. You don't need to worry about other people. You just need to be thinking about the Lord. In Mark's Gospel, we read the institution of this supper. He says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I'm going to ask us all now, as we take the bread, to take a moment of quiet, to invite God to speak into our lives, um, individually, yes, but corporately as well, as we give thanks and we recognise that our Lord Jesus' death has given us life, given us hope, um, we know that how worthy we are 
of his love because he chose to love us, not because we earned it, and because he was at work there. And so it says in Corinthians, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Also says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is in the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that we can read it. Father, we also pray, Lord, that you'd help us to put it into practice. Father, we pray that you might just um, reassure our hearts about the hope that we have in you. Father, we thank you that you love us. Father, we pray that we might be open for you to work out your work through us as your people. And Father, as we've shared together in this meal, we pray that you'd unify us together, not for our own benefit, but because we are part of your body. And for that, we are thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.